Blog Talk Radio. Hello, welcome to Make Life Happen. This is Dr. Carol Francis from the Los Angeles area. Feel free to call me at 310-543-1824 or the guest caller number is 347-326-9364 if you're calling during the live time. Today is an inspiring topic about life changes and the way of changing the world in yourself. In an era where there are so many complications, devastations, and fears, anxieties abounding around us, it is a little tricky to think that compassion, that compassion is actually the energy behind the ability to change the planet, change yourself, heal your circumstances, and actually affect the type of goals you want to affect. Michael Ortiz Hill, who may not be able to join us right now, hopefully he'll be able to join us a little bit later, is a prolific author, and his books are a free association, a passage of one thought, one event, one lesson to the next, very much like the way you and I live our life, where every single moment flows into the next moment. And if we're paying attention and we're closely aware and conscious, we can learn the lessons that are embedded so deeply, so superficially, so immediately and spontaneously available to us so that we are aware of what we can contribute to others and how life contributes to ourselves. Michael Ortiz has taken the opportunity to look at racial tension, major medical illnesses of very chronic and serious complications, and walked into a planet, a planet of paradigm shift, where he looks at our opportunities to live life interconnected to one another in a way that allows compassion to be the generative energy behind the changes that we all wish to have. In the book that's about to come out called The Heart of Learning, The Craft of Compassion, Michael Ortiz Hill, and this will be published very soon, hopefully in the next six months, states very specifically that compassion is the ground of human happiness. Now think about it for a moment in your life where you're surrounded by people who are troubled and perhaps you are troubled as well. And the very act of being able to have compassion for someone else embodies your power to give the generative process of creativity in the essence of compassion allows you to recognize that you can cause a change. Quoting a book written by Aura Glasser, who is a Buddhist and a psychotherapist, Michael Ortiz says that in in her writing, A Call to Compassion, that the Tibetan tradition is replete with the instruction and methodology about the development of compassion. I found the phrase methodology about the development of compassion to be very keen and central in a day and an era where we're looking for the tools and techniques of change, the tools and techniques of mastering the secrets of the cosmos so that we can affect the results that we want to affect in our lives. To understand that there's a methodology behind the development of compassion that will impact our inner development Now the question that I wanted to ask for Michael, and I think you should ask yourself as well, is that since we are so oriented toward outer progress, whether it is an economic concern, dealing with our family, taking care of our physical, financial, mental, material welfare, is that outer progress actually impacted by the art or the methodology of developing compassion? And I would suggest to you that absolutely it is, through a number of different means. 
in another way of saying it, Aura Glasser, again, in her book called A Call to Compassion, says that compassion, since love and compassion are understood in this tradition to be both the engine and elixir of transformation, enormous emphasis was placed on their cultivation. I'll think a moment about the Tibetans saying that compassion is an engine. It is the tool, the machination, the craft that causes things to happen. It is the means to the end. It is the tool. Compassion is the tool toward transformation. This is an era of change. We can no longer stand embedded in the same old traditions of what we've had in the past. Therefore, we need to look and find what the engines of true transformation are. And her idea is, is that love and compassion is the engine that will create transformation. But then she goes on and says it's also the elixir of the transformation. When we are looking for the enthusiasm, the focus, the motivation, the stimulation, in other words, the emotional and mental dynamic energy, the fuel, if you will, behind which change can be made, the energy behind it, that change can be made using the energy that is the elixir of love and compassion. Now we suddenly have a formula. It becomes the tool, the machination, the machinery, and it also becomes the fuel of that machinery that can affect transformation. I would suggest to you that the transformation that we're talking about is both outer-oriented, inner-oriented, and simultaneously related to the interdependence between, yes, you, me, and everybody else, and everything else that is taking place. Michael Ortiz, in a very uh, uh, essay sort of fashion, delineates the four points that is about compassion, the dimensions, the four dimensions of compassion. So, and he really believes that these are the four steps of learning compassion. That we have to break it down into how we stumble from crawling into running like a a leopard with the ease of compassion, that he breaks it down into four steps. Let me delineate them for you. Compassion for yourself, being first. Compassion for the others seems to follow naturally, doesn't it? And then, of course, an equalization or exchange of the compassion with self and other, something which he has termed radical empathy. Thereafter, he says, then we live in what's called a living compassion, a state in which there's no sense of self or other, there's a sense of just compassion being with a capital C, the very essence of the experience, without it being referenced to self or other, but with it being an existence within its own essence, the essence of compassion. So let's go back to the first step, the step of having compassion towards yourself. The act of suffering, Michael Ortiz Hills would say, is a movement toward having the capacity to sit and having to compassion with yourself. If you're in a state of suffering, which many listeners are, then to have compassion for the dilemma and circumstances, trials and complications that you are facing, and to fill yourself up with a sense of self-respect about how you need to walk the path of caring about yourself, 
is what he would suggest would be the step one, the self-compassion. In a wonderful quote in the book that Michael Ortiz is about to publish, he mentions how that the imperfections of a person's life, a person's qualities and personality, the imperfections are the cracks through which the light of compassion comes through. When I read that one very pithy statement, it realized to me that it is in the imperfect, in the flaw, in the suffering, in the yuck, in the grotesque, it is in the things that are troubling that provides a space for someone to look and perceive and experience the flood of compassion that would come through. If we live in perfection and think that we are perfect and others ought to be as well, it is the, it is the, the seat of judgmentalness, the shoulds, the uh, criticalness, the lack of compassion. And therefore, in believing that perfection is the paradigm with which one is going to approach life, doesn't allow for the crack. And the crack, in perfection, allows very clearly for the experience of compassion. We have someone calling in. I'm going to take them right now. Hello, caller. This is Dr. Carol Francis. Welcome. Well, hello, Dr. Carol Francis. It's Michael Ortiz. Oh. I'm so glad to hear you. How are you? I've been talking about your book, and I'm glad you could join me. How are you you this evening? I am quite well. I actually thought you were coming up to interview me, but I guess I misunderstood. Oh, I I would have loved to have traveled in your beautiful domain. (laughs) No, actually, we were going to do it the easy way and just do it online and calling. I'm glad you got my message. You know, Michael, I've just been in the midst of talking about your very first point about self-compassion. And I mentioned the, the wonderful quote about how the, crack, the cracks allow the compassion to come through. And whereas it, perfection and perfectionism doesn't allow any light to come through because it no. resides in judgmentalness, yeah. I was wondering if you can pick up from there as we move from step one and then eventually move into step two. Can you talk to us about step one first? Oh, step one. Well, what can I possibly say? Now, I know, of course, you're referring to the quote from uh, Leonard Cohen. Forget about your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That is how the light gets in. And I think everybody knows that. We have all experienced it. We know what it is to recognize our radical and profound imperfection. And, uh, you know, the way I look at step one, uh, I speak of the deep stratum of uh, self-compassion, which is amor fati, that means to love one's fate in Latin. What is one's fate? I mean, my fate. To be born who I was born, to be born to such a family. What What has been chosen for you rather than what you have chosen? You know, and uh, I speak, of course, of being uh, diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. What did it mean to embrace the spirit of MS and regard that as the context in which I would learn compassion? Hmm. Yeah. That was certainly a situation where everything was cracked, wasn't it? Everything was broken. Oh, utterly. Nothing was working for you. <laughs> oh, Lord. Have Our me. listeners, a bit about that moment? Well, you know, 
What can I possibly say? Um, I was diagnosed six years ago with multiple sclerosis, or rather, let me put it this way, I was diagnosed four years ago, but I, six years ago I started having peripheral neuropathy, which is to say from my waist down I was numb. And it was undiagnosable. I was told by a neurologist that most neuropathies are undiagnosable. And he basically said, it's not fatal, but we don't know what it is. So I lived with that, and it was extraordinary because I was a registered nurse. I'd just come back from Africa with numb legs, had just been going through ritual initiation in Zimbabwe, and I immediately was floated as a nurse to the neurofloor, and I'm taking care of people who are dealing with the ordeal, ordeals of their nervous system. And here I have an undiagnosed neurological symptom. And I lived with that for three or four years before I was diagnosed. So every time I approached a patient in the hospital or every time I approached anybody, I could not, the apartheid fantasy of here I am, the hale, healthy one, and you are the poor wretch of a human being, I couldn't maintain that. I knew that I was not whole or my wholeness was not about my symptoms, or however you put it. That was the crack, (laughs) and it's the crack through which compassion comes. I literally stood on the same ground as my patients. It was a profound gift in that respect. It reminds me of that ex- the step three. I think you talk about that empathic was the empathic compassion. Radical empathy, yeah. Mm-hmm. There it is, radical empathy. Yeah. Was that a new experience for you, or were you, as a nurse, already so well cultivated for um, caring, for compassion, for extending your gifts to others? Yeah, it 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 took it to a different level. <laughs> it took it to a different level. You know, I uh, was um, a couple of years ago when I was coming out the other side of multiple sclerosis, I was meditating on the archetype of the wounded healer. And what I was writing about is what is the essential wound that connects me with wounded humanity? You know, that is the sacred wound. And I do not want to give that up, you know. Um, and that that was profoundly, that illuminated it for me. And when you say you don't want to give it up, because? Because that's how the light gets in. <laughs> that's how the light gets in. There is a crack in everything, you know. Uh So therefore, in the state of being grateful or thankful for the crack, being uh, in celebration, so to speak, for what the crack offers, how big it makes you able to Mm -hmm. resonate and care and and feel the compassion, is there also the other side of it where one becomes too identified with the crack, with the difficulty, 
and thereby yeah. too passive or accepting of the circumstances instead of embracing the dynamic of change, the intent to heal. Well, that, and thank you for saying that because that is the seduction which um, anybody who has been seriously ill and anybody who's taking care of folks who are seriously ill, there can be, how do you say, kind of a necessary organic narcissism that is generated by one's illness. Uh, Baba Ram Dass was talked about when he was stroked, as he puts his uh, his uh, be having a stroke. When he was stroked, he was he was going down. You know, I mean, physically going down. And he started thinking. The first thing that came to my mind is, oh no, I I I, I was going to have a my own radio show and this and that. <laughs> And you know the the narcissism that gathers, but then one has to pair away that I am not the only afflicted one, you know. Hmm. And of course, the gift of being a registered nurse when I was having this peripheral neuropathy before I was diagnosed with MS, but it was clearly the beginning. Um, was that I could only look at people who I, as I said, on the same ground as they. And the neuropathy, my numb feet, step by step by step, was making me very aware of that. When you became... I'm going to use the word miraculously healed from MS and diagnosed as completely clean not too terribly long ago, Michael. Um, wow, what a wonderful email that was to receive from you. How, what was the transformation inside of you in terms of this compassion and in terms of this ability to identify because you're cracked, but now you are healed? What's the shift inside? What's your paradigm shift now as you've come to this other side of the river, so to speak? That's a, that's a very interesting question. And I, do, I, do I know the answer? That's also an interesting <laughs> question. <when laughs> I know the answer. Uh, Lord, it's, you know, the way I speak of it is every step I take, I walk on the ground of miracle. Mm. You know, I mean, I was just walking our dog, uh, oh, right before I called you. And... Mm. Um, uh, it was two years ago where that was not a that was not even plausible. Oh um, yes. You know, I my legs would not carry me. They simply wouldn't. And if anything else, it would be utterly exhausting. And I certainly couldn't do it without a cane. So you know, the the paradigm shift is uh, the way. Uh, my Mapachka, my twin brother in Africa, puts it as spirit wants to heal. God wants to heal. I am God's arms. I am God's legs. Spirit comes through me that I might heal. And, of course, being the object of being healed. Um, he says it's not human beings that heal other human beings. God is the healer. 
it's not human beings that initiate other human beings. Spirit, the ancestors, are the agents. Yeah, I mean, it is it is a complete paradigm shift. Complete. Mm. It's, I was talking, I'm working with a woman with multiple sclerosis now, and uh, I'm having her gather together what she is grateful for. How has MS been a gift? And uh, she has said what I've heard from other people with MS, that she's learned what the present moment is, brought to the present moment. And we both quite agreed that uh, we've learned humility from MS. <laughs> I was telling a friend today, you know, when you're, when you're urinating on yourself, when you're uh, be-shitting yourself, you learn humility. And one, uh, and one, you sent me a, one of the chapters from your book that's about to be published, and you say the transformation of humiliation to humility was, like with so many, a passage through dis-ease. The catalyst of that transformation was gratitude. Yeah. That is how the light of self-compassion gets in. Please. That's, that's precisely it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that yeah. is the first step. Yeah. Step two, compassion for others. Of course, we've already kind of touched into that. I'm struck by a quote where you say, George Washington Carver says, how far you go in this life depends on you being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong, because one day you will have been all of these. (laughs) Nice, nice quote. How do you want to elaborate step two? Mm. Well, I think, you know, I did quote Carver for that reason. You know, um, again, this, the gift of the multiple sclerosis, <laughs> the gift of illness, what I call sacred illness, that's the way I was initiated in Zimbabwe through sacred illness. And, of course, multiple sclerosis was that also. Um, one, when one is with, as Carver says, as a healer and a nurse, whoever I am with, whoever is afflicted, this could be my grandmother, my grandfather, this could be my childhood buddy, this could be, um, this could be myself. This could be my sister. Whatever, that profound solidarity, in fact, of the human condition. It's when I imagine that I am outside of that, outside of that primal and primordial community, that the heart is closed. And I move from that. In step two, I work from the... um, the Buddha's, uh, the Buddha's teaching about compassion is that compassion is sympathetic joy, which is joy over another's joy, and sympathetic sorrow, which is sorrow over another's sorrow. Mm. And uh, I've taught the uh, craft of compassion to uh, students at um, Crenshaw High in the inner city. 
And I did writing exercises. What is the joy of your joy with which you meet another's joy? And what is the sorrow of your sorrow in which you meet another's sorrow? Mm-hmm. Of course, the kids were astonishing. And they were telling the real, the real stories of their life. You know. And... Uh, so in in their tragedies, were they able to uh, rise, you know, rise up into a sense of strength out of their tragedy? Yeah, there was there was one girl who, bless her courage, she was telling about um, a fire in the house that had taken a couple of family members, mm-hmm. and speaking and weeping over the grief of that. And through that grief, she could receive and hear other ones, other children who knew grief. Wow. Yeah, wow, indeed. Incredible, really. You state again, they are now not a burden meaning your suffering, but an opportunity for connection. And other people's sufferings are not a burden, but connection, which offers a kind of freedom, a naive individualism infects the Western world. Mm -hmm. Um, Almost like a liberation from our individualism is our ability to connect. I think so. And our suffering becomes a tool, a, a mechanism. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, no, it's that's exactly right. And um you know, I, I remember many years ago I was a student of Lama Sogyal and uh I don't know whatever I was kvetching about this or that, you know, I was complaining <laughs> about how my sitting practice was going, et cetera, et cetera, and he said, Wonderful. That is great here <laughs> you know, and he was a very basic Buddhist teaching. The first noble truth is suffering. And it's not that Buddhism thinks suffering is altogether a great thing. But if you don't look at how you generate suffering, then you won't realize Buddha Dharma and you won't realize compassion. And compassion and suffering is ubiquitous. There is a, a story of the Buddha where a woman came and she was out of her mind with grief. I don't know who she lost, but somebody died. And she wanted the Buddha to resurrect this, whatever we'll call her grandmother, you know. And uh, the Buddha said, uh, I will do so. But first you must bring a mustard seed. One mustard seed from a household anywhere where people have not lost anybody. And, of course, the woman wandered around looking for a mustard seed, and she couldn't find it. <laughs> that was that was the beginning of her serious practice as a Dharma practitioner, and it was the recognizing that the suffering she was carrying was radically, fundamentally not individual, and therefore it connected her with others who suffer and others who know loss. 
It strikes me that a moment ago you, were, you mentioned that the seduction or the narcissistic seduction of adhering to your suffering, but you are suggesting that there's also a narcissistic seduct, seduction at adhering to the avoidance of suffering, as if we can skip out of the experience. Yeah, uh, and you know, and it's... I'm, I will not curse. <laughs> it's not... <laughs> It is such nonsense, and it generates such suffering. You know, anybody who thinks they're going to make it through this life without facing, and I want to say the mystery of suffering, is insisting on being a child. But, of course, children are not so naive. (laughs) Children know it. They suffer it. Everybody does. Yeah. Um, you know, you you have a an absolutely beautiful way about you. I've been in your presence a number of times, and and then now ha- having the op- opportunity to read so much of your writing. And in the most recent material you sent me about the the crane, the paper crane, you oh yeah, so many. Ex- oh, I just Miss- I read it. I sent it out to all my friends and. It has so many what? examples. I know. Sorry. Oh, don't be sorry. How, how the writer's your, dream. <laughs> how you shared your a moment of being able to just capture the experience of someone else's situation yeah. and convert it into an opportunity for them to experience compassion, a self-compassion given by you. I don't know if you could share a number of these stories from that chapter about the paper crane. <laughs> You're going to have to remind me. <laughs> I wrote that chapter well, a couple of years ago. Oh, I, oh, you did? You just sent it off to me. Well, let me remind you of one. You talked about Armando in this. Armando, yes. Armando. <laughs> tell, Thank you. Oh, Armando, pues. <laughs> Armando. Well, I had come to work on the 10th floor at UCLA Medical Center, which is And I 
I went to uh, his room. His mother was dying. In fact, that night she was had liver cancer, and the family was gathered around the bed. And you know, I, and I, it was a profound teaching about courage because, I, of course, I was initially quite frightened of this kid, you know, and he was in fact a broken child. He was a child, and he was watching his mother die. And and yet, um, and, and yet just to interlude here, he yeah. was the type of child that broke you in your childhood. Totally. That, yeah. Completely. So. What a way to face it. Okay, so here he is, a broken child. Yeah, and, you know, as were the kids who tormented me, no doubt. Yes. <laughs> yeah. A long time ago. I mean, I'm 52 years old. I'm not a teenager. I'm not a 13-year-old <laughs> anymore. You want to ask to grow up sooner or later, right? Oh, dear, the cycle of life. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I'm initiated in Africa, of course, and I called on the Chapungu, who is the warrior spirit who protects those who cannot protect themselves. Mm. And I called on Chapuku to follow me into the room because I was, in fact, frightened. And I had no idea what I was going to say. And I talked to the family in Spanish. And, and I said to Armando, you, you plugged up the sink and you know flooded the, uh, the bathroom, didn't you? And he's he was very sheepish. He looked to the oh. side, nodded his head, and and I said, uh, "You're you're carrying so many feelings. It's very hard, isn't it, with your mother as she is?" I said, "I I my father died when I was a couple of years older than you, and I can remember what that was." And uh, and I looked out at the family and I said, "Take care of him." His heart is breaking. Hmm. They called security to come up, and I will send them away. Hmm. And as I left the room, security was at the door. (laughs) And I explained to them what was going on, and I said, the kid's losing his mother. He's just heartbroken. Hmm. You know, and they left, and that was that. I said, he's okay. I, I, I said to Armando, you're not a bad person, are you? And you're not going to do this again. And he assured me that that was true. And that that's the whole story. But it was the thing about Armando that was so, for me, profound is what in the way of compassion, it, well, again, it's like uh, Carver, George Washington Carver, the, you meet yourselves in meeting the other and I've certainly met Armando I I met the young boy that lost his father and I certainly met the Pachuco who made my life so damn miserable when I was a kid (laughs) you know it was actually altogether wonderful (laughs) that I, I could reconcile with Pachuco it's just ironic, isn't it? It's just oh, so very ironic. Totally, <laughs> completely. <laughs> it's almost like uh, it's almost like converting sweet revenge into sweet compassion and getting a much grander result. Well, that is that's precisely it, and uh, you know, it's um, 
how do you say in in Greek tragedy the Oresteia the the Furies are transformed into the Eumenides which means the kindly ones and that is exactly what happened with Armando the 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 turgid stuff of fear and confusion were transformed by way of compassion and gentleness into the kindly ones. At the beginning of, of this program, uh, I, I was reading from your paper to the listeners mm-hmm. about um, Aura Glasser, am I saying that right, the call to huh, compassion, yeah. when, she, when she says, since love and compassion are understood in this tradition to be both the engine and the elixir of transformation, Exactly. Enormous emphasis was placed on their cultivation. You embodied with Ormondo, utilizing mm-hmm. compassion to transform mm-hmm. you, him, the nursing staff, the death of his mother, the security guards, all to face that this is a moment for compassion. Exactly. And, and all made gentle, um, understandable, not less painful in terms of the suffering, but mm-hmm. more doable. Exactly. Thank you. You you said that very clearly. Mm-hmm. That was exactly what happened, and it was a gift for me. And mm-hmm. see, that's the thing about compassion that is so profound. It heals the one who is the practitioner of compassion, <laughs> but it right. also, of course, the one who is the receiver of compassion. Potent. It's so potent, isn't it? It is the magical elixir, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, totally. You yeah. okay? So now I must remind you of your paper crane uh, essay because this individual evidently was folding all these paper crane <laughs> cranes, <laughs> and that and you were to usher them. And at one point, you had a, a, a poem and in a certain language sent. I, I mean, the, the story goes on and on and on about how these cranes yeah. began to be the. Explain it, Michael. I can't say it. It was just a very moving essay. Oh, dear, dear Mrs. Yasu, I finally met the woman. You know, oh, I don't know if I sent you that, but I think that's going to be the little epigraph at the very beginning of the book. Mrs. Yasu started going blind in the early 90s, and she made 10,000 origami cranes on Braille paper, praying that her sight would be returned. It's a traditional Japanese offering. And, of course, her sight didn't come back. Mm -hmm. And she continued to make them for other people who are afflicted. Mm -hmm. And she would leave them at, they would be left by the chaplaincy or whoever in the chapel at UCLA Medical Center. There'd be a couple of dozen. And I would go and meditate there before my shift. And I would take a few of them to bring to patients. Some patients that I knew and some that were other people's patients, you know. Uh, and and I would write a poem. I would, off, I would get a flower often, and I would write a poem saying, if I had but three loaves of bread, I would sell one and buy hyacinths, for they would feed my soul. This is... I'm told this comes from the Koran. I've never been able to locate it in the Koran. And I wouldn't write the Koran. 
on the point because, you know, God help us, Muslims scare people given the times, right? And um, and I'd often come to other nurses or care partners, nursing aides, to translate the poem. I talk about Mrs. Kodrescu, who is a Romanian woman. Her daughter, I, uh, how do you say, I admitted her. She didn't speak any English. She had senile dementia. And her daughter brought her to the hospital and left her in my care. And um, oh, I, uh, I was floated from the floor. I, you know, met her, and an hour later they sent me in another floor. But I had my cranes, and I came back to, with the poem. I had a friend write it in Romanian for her, mm-hmm. and <laughs> this woman, uh, the nurse's aide. She said, "Is this is this, uh, is this woman a Muslim? I can tell you, there are no Ru- Muslims in Romania. You know, whatever." <laughs> she wrote it. She gave me the poem, and I came back to the room, and the woman was gone. Oh no! You know, she was just gone. <laughs> Went to the nurses' station. I said, "Is there?" I got this gift here, but I don't know where to take it. Do you, do you know of a real crazy? woman somewhere around that I could leave this with. And she sends me down the hall and says, yeah, there's a Mexican woman down the hall, you know, and she's crazier than hell. You know, so I walk down the hall feeling like a little bit of an idiot myself and uh, with my flower and my poem and my crane. <laughs> and the Mexican woman, in fact, was Mrs. Kodrescu, not a Mexican woman at all. And it was five in the morning. And I tiptoed in. And she was not crazy. She was smiling. I gave her the poem and the crane. But that's what I would do. And it was one of the pleasures of, you know, I did this for like, I don't know, several years. And, you know, again, often with people who I never met before, but who were just wanting, just needing a little kindness and beauty. Every opportunity becoming, every situation becoming an opportunity for being able to extend compassion. Exactly. Every every moment, every moment, that would be step number two. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. Let's move on to radical empathy. You say from John Howard Griffin's book, um, Equalizing and Exchanging Self and Others. You've lifted that phrase out of his book. No, 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 no. No? Right, that's lifted out of Glosser's book. This is um, this oh, okay. is this is a dreadful translation of Dekshin Yamje, which is the Tibetan trans usually translated as equalizing, exchanging self and other. I was speaking of John Howard Griffin's book Black Like Me, as okay. a metaphor of somebody who played that out utterly. During the civil rights movement, he's a white man. He was taking some sort of chemical, I don't even remember what, that made him into a black man. And he traveled overland through the Deep South to see the Deep South through a black man's eyes at that particular moment in American history, which was, as we know, 
nuts. <laughs> Very difficult. Oh, yeah. So that I'm using him as a metaphor of what it means to equalize and exchange self and other, to look through another's eyes. I, I translated radical empathy, and I speak of the Cherokee proverb, you can only understand another if you've walked three moons in their moccasins. So, anyway, forgive me for contradicting you. <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, correct me, please. <laughs> There's a crack for the compassion. I don't care at all. The, okay. So, it, it, I mentioned to the listeners at the beginning that you really try to delineate these steps as a way of growing the capacity for compassion, and this is the third step. It strikes me that they're all cyclical. In any given moment, you can have self-compassion, compassion for someone else, and now this ability to have this radical empathy. Do you think that when you move into a position of radical empathy that you that there is a transformation in your consciousness of self and other? Is it is it a movement from the westernized individualization to... It, it absolutely. Can, yeah. you, can you embody that for us? More. Embody it. <laughs> Bless you. Well, you know, in terms of <laughs> no, I, I will. I, I, I will become you, Carol. <laughs> okay. Well, that's that's kind of what radical empathy is, isn't it? <laughs> well, it actually is. You know, that I, I speak of two layers of it. I mean, one is the training of the soul, and for myself, <laughs> my education. Oh, God, I lived in Saskatoon with my girlfriend, uh, Kochia. I was 16 years old, and how do you say? I was a housewife, a budding housewife. I was an illegal alien up there. She worked in a pizza parlor. I would cook the meals and uh, keep the house together, and, and I threw myself into feminist literature at 16, reading Kate Millett and Sisterhood is Powerful and Jermaine Greer, etc. And being a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed uh, teenage feminist, <laughs> I wanted to see the world through female eyes. That was my education. And then, you know, I moved from Canada back to the United States. I was homeless for three years. And I wanted to know what poverty was. These, again, are educations of the soul. Then my daughter was born when I was 20. And because I had been a homeless high school dropout, I stayed at home with my daughter and, again, was a housewife and, you know, taking care of my daughter. And wanting to get a feel for a woman's point of view and then anyway the story goes on and on and on ultimately again I was trained as an African medicine man and I did work on my book for 10 years on black people's dreams about white people but there was a necessity of the crumbling of in fact the white male identity in order to really do justice to these dreams so this is this is the spiritual practice of Dekshin Yamje. What do you have to go to 
to radically empathize with the perspective of an other. On a more mundane level, um, I tell the story of a, a, a nurse that I worked with who had a patient, she was um, she was in Amnesty International in a, in a Latin American country and was arrested and tortured and spent, I don't know how many, two or three years in prison, was multiply raped. Um, it was horrendous. She had done a hunger strike in prison. She wanted to die. Um, and she was told a little bit of this on the report before she took this patient. The moment she met her, the woman was refusing to eat. She was, as we say, not compliant. And my friend immediately slipped behind her eyes and was looking at the prison, I mean, forgive me, the hospital, (laughs) as a prison which this woman was seeing it as. She had tried to starve herself at home. Her neighbors or her friends had brought her to the hospital. Um, They certainly didn't want her to starve herself to death. And my friends basically, and she said, how do I soften this time in the hospital? So this woman doesn't see it as a prison. And that was how she approached the situation. The woman did say that there was a moment when the people who had prisoned her brought her husband and son in and effectively drugged her and manipulated her hands so that she pulled the trigger that killed both her husband and her son. And she merely wanted to die. And my friend, how could she argue with such? (laughs) You know, um, it was it was a long and complex story. But those are the the how do you say the skeleton of it. The point being, my friend was not privileging her point of view. It was this was. equalizing and exchanging. She looked at the situation. She looked at the hospital through this woman's eyes and the history she brought to it. That's what one does. That's that is radical empathy. And it is it is a you know, there's a slippage between step how do you say, one, two, three and four One and two, one can personalize compassion. You can say, I am the compassionate one. When you go into step three and four, you start recognizing compassion is not a personal quality. Compassion is a spirit. You get out of the way. So compassion can come through. And that is the transformation of, of the soul. That is the way compassion illuminates oneself. Let's move in then to step four. Just to 
reiterate something you powerfully said a moment ago. I just want to say it as a statement that people can hold on to. One's own story is not privileged over another's. Precisely. One's own story. Yeah, it's not privileged over another. And then you go on to say with radical empathy, one is prepared to cross over to the mysterium. Yeah. The living compassion. Right. The living compassion is your fourth statement. Your fourth yeah. Step. Yeah, that's, thank you. That is, it's, it's so hard to describe, and when you're in it, it is so radically simple. Mm-hmm. It is, in fact, simplicity itself. I uh, I do tell the story about Lewis I had uh, come back from Africa, (laughs) and God knows I had not even recovered from jet lag, much less the pace in Los Angeles. When I take people to Africa, I tell them, it is a different time here. Mm -hmm. People move in a different space of time. Mm -hmm. And if you move from the place of vast American urban time among tribal Africans, they will either see you as aggressive or perhaps a little crazy. But then there is coming back. (laughs) There's coming back from Africa. And here I was, God help me, I am, again, the float nurse. I'm floated to the fifth floor, med surge floor, it's crazy busy. Everybody's running around like a chicken with their head cut off. And I'm That's the reality. That's the reality and I'm trying and and I don't know how to move out of African time. And I must have had eight or nine cups of coffee. I figure if I drink enough coffee I'll be speedy <laughs> enough, but that's not working at all. You know? <laughs> I'm trying to move into a compassion empathy with this incredibly accelerated environment. Oh, it's anyway. br- Deranged. By caffeine. <laughs> and and I and it's three or four in the morning and I'm feeling oh I'm finally getting into it. I'm fine things are kind of cohering sorta. And then of course the charge nurse tells me I have an admit from the ER. And I'm thinking, Oh dear God, you know. So I do what I do. Crossing the threshold is very important, very important when you're practicing compassion. And as a nurse or any situation, the threshold is a doorway here. You know, I might kiss the mezuzah if I was a Jew, but there's no mezuzah there. (laughs) You know, crossing the threshold saying, dear God, make use of me. You know, here I am. I go in the door. The patient is a 52-year-old man with Down syndrome. Didn't even know they lived so long. Extreme hydrocephalus. His head is shaped like a melon. And his right foot has got an abscess, uh, which is why his mother brought him in and uh, for antibiotic therapy and such. And I'm admitting him and talking to him, and he's speaking very slowly. And he tells me his father just died a few months ago. And uh, it's hard to describe the ambience of this dialogue, but it was so exquisitely slow. (laughs) Wow. It's almost a gift to you. Oh, completely, and a light was upon us. 
you know and i this is this is being compassion i could not it, compassion came as a spirit i could not speak of it as in him or in me it was between us and it was illuminating the two of us and I, I was stunned by his complete lack of self-pity. You know, the fact is, he, after his elderly mother died, he'd probably be institutionalized. Um, and I could say, well, he's an imbecile. What does he know? <laughs> you know, I could dismiss him, but it was that would be far too easy. And I told him, you're a remarkable man. And he said, thank you. And... Um, I again I don't know if he understood me at all but uh, who knows whatever uh-huh. I could not dismiss him as an imbecile I left the room complete I was made whole by it that is being compassion it's not and there's no focus of me the compassionate one you the poor wreck <laughs> Of a human being who is uh, who is lavished with my compassion, nothing of the sort. It's almost um, as if you were transported into a sanctuary or a domain that was energized by pervasive compassion, so that it was the experience of that's yes, you got it. The then. both of you together. Yeah, that's precisely it. That's precisely it, and it such is it is redemption. It's the essence of redemption. Mm. And then to walk out of that that domain and become self-conscious once again, and recognizing, oh my goodness, I've worn the garment of of um, <laughs> of that domain and stepped back into being human almost. Oh yeah. <laughs> You say well, in your, your, I'm sorry. Oh, in Buddhism they say, after meditation become a child of illusion. <laughs> and oh, every wow. meditation practitioner knows this. You meditate, you meditate for an hour, a day, a few months, whatever. But then you come back into the so-called world and you have to be a child of illusion. And you have to negotiate that world, you know. I mean, I come out from being with Lewis, and then there's the last two hours of the shift, which, of course, are the most chaotic ones. Uh, did you feel the remnant of the experience follow you, uh, like a, like an aura, like a, like the radiance of a perfume? Well, the truth is, I still do. <laughs> Actually, I'm not exaggerating. Yes, of course. Yeah. Beautiful. It was it was a great uh, it was a great honor. You end your essay with a quote from Shakespeare. You say the quality of mercy is not strained. Mm. It drops the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesses him that gives and him that takes. That's exactly. It's not strained, is it, Michael? In that domain, it's not strained. Absolutely not. Yeah. It is the putting down of burden. Michael, we have spent almost 60 minutes on this, and it's felt like five seconds. I've noticed that too, dear. 
my goodness. You mean we're going to finish up, aren't we, damn it? Oh, we are. What, what, what would you like to say in, in, in the, on the culmination of this as we, as we jettison others back into the illusion of their everyday life and, a, and actually a society that is so burdened with opportunities to be compassionate? Does that make sense? We are now oh, living it. We're living it. These are the cracks. We're living in the cracks. Mm-hmm. What do you want to say to us? Mm. <laughs> well, I'm gonna. I want to say, go to my website. <laughs> <laughs> do it, please. Please tell us. Yes. Well, why not a little self-advertising? God, how embarrassing. I actually have that on my on the description of our our presentation. Please oh, I'm so glad. I, I have a new website, even. But if you go to Gathering In, you can connect with my new Tarot website. Uh, I do tarot readings on the phone and in person for anybody who might be interested. Um, in, in gathering in, I have probably, I think, six or so chapters from the book, The Craft of Compassion. I will be teaching compassion, uh, the craft of compassion in Santa Fe. Oh, soul of Santa Fe, it's whenever it is. It is November, the third week of November. It looks like something like the 20th, 21st, 22nd of November in Santa Fe. I'm going to teach you with Kirsten Geminer, MD, who um, was my student up te- when I taught the craft of compassion up north in Mount Madonna. And um, we're going to go through the four steps. So... And and they're uh, going to be 19 continuing education credits. We're trying to get continuing education credits for MDs as well. So anyway, that's that's the the station identification moment. No, Michael, how do you want people to contact you? Um, people to know email? where your books are. I'm sorry. Yes, well, who, how do you want people to contact you and know how to read your books? Um. They can go to my website. There's a book section, and uh, and including my books on on sacred illness, chap books, little essays, forty, fifty page essays. They are posted in entirety. You can read them online. Um, yeah, uh, this book, The Craft of Compassion, hopefully will go to the publisher in a few weeks. It is not published at the moment, but the chapters including the one, Smuggling Beauty. I do believe Smuggling Beauty is posted, maybe. <laughs> it should you know, be. Let me put it that uh, way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you are uh, you are accessible. People can get to you. And uh, um, we're not currently streaming live. People who are listening to this now, having been recorded, they will, they will know how to contact you. Yeah, smug- Smuggling Beauty is... On my home page, yes, the one about the the, the uh, I want to say the swans, the little origami cranes. Yes, it's a great chapter. Oh, Michael, thank you so much for sharing yourself. Oh, thank and you also. Dinner. You were such so. a friend. <laughs> a new friend, a very new friend. So, if well. you need someone to video your class, you just call me, and I'll come right out to Santa Fe. Okay. My own home, you know. That's where I'm from. You're from Santa Fe. 
Well, Los Alamos, New Mexico. Oh, that's right. You're from Los I remember that now, of course. Yeah. Los Alamos. Indeed. Well, do be well. And, yes, uh, ha- have a wonderful night. Thank you for sharing. Oh, oh wait a minute, Carol. Uh, if yes? you want to see Carol's interview on my website. Yes. <laughs> oh, you've got it on. Illness as initiation, a YouTube video. It's on my website. So there we are. Wonderful. Wonderful. And then I know I have four others streamed on the YouTube, too, and I have that listed as well. <laughs> Michael, I'm going to call you up to do this again and again and again. Thank you so much. Oh, do so. <laughs> okay. okay, good. Thank Take you. Very good care. Bye-bye. Bless you. Bye-bye.